Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. While the Nats are in St. Louis, the Red Hot Chili Peppers take over Nationals Park this Thursday night. Make Walters your spot before and after the concert. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The 2-2. Swing a high drive right field. Back on this one, Manessis to the warning track at the bullpen fence. He leaps and it's gone. 4-1 Cardinals. Gorman, home run number 14, dropped that one right into the St. Louis bullpen. Now the set. Here's the pitch. Swing and a miss. Struck him out and the game is over. Got him with the cutter. Ryan Helsley holds on after a leadoff double and a one-out walk. And preserves the victory for the Cardinals to even this series at a victory apiece. And welcome to Nats Chat for Wednesday, September 7th, 2022, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Bush Stadium in St. Louis. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Nats, a three-game winning streak over. We, on Tuesday night, had an offensive performance by the Nats that was rather familiar. Uh, a 4-1 loss at the National League Central leading St. Louis Cardinals in Game 2 of a four-game series. The loss ended the Nats' three-game winning streak, and the loss featured the kind of, like, sleepy, you know, nothing-happening offensive performance that uh, we have grown accustomed to with the Nats this season. You know, Mark, we had gotten a bit spoiled with uh, how the Nats had been hitting and how the Nats had been scoring, and, you know, you maybe possibly were waiting for the Nats to do something in this game on Tuesday night, but uh, that something never ended up happening. Yeah, I guess it's a good thing, Al, that we've actually come to expect this team to score runs because that has not been the case for the majority of the season. But over the last week and particularly the previous three days, it absolutely had been the case. So, yeah, it was actually a little bit surprising that they just never got it going in this game. They had the one early run and really didn't even threaten that much after that until the ninth when, of course, the boys battled. They brought the tying run to the plate before stranding those runs on base and You know, you hope this is just a one-off and not a sign of more of this to come. But I think we have to acknowledge that maybe what we had seen the last three days was a little bit better than we should count on happening on a daily basis from this team at this point. Well, there are a few things in this game that I think are worth getting into. And one of them is the return of our friend Nelson Cruz. Uh, He was back on Tuesday night, returned from a three-game absence of having fouled a ball off his left knee in that 7-3 loss at the Mets 
this past Friday night. And Davey Martinez went right back to having Nelson Cruz as the starting DH and number four batter. And, you know, look, I don't think anyone is surprised by this. We've talked about this, how this really shouldn't be happening at this point in the season, given the year that Nelson Cruz has had, given the future that Nelson has with this team, which would seem to be zero, given the state of the Nats. But, you know, it's interesting, right? He's back in this game. He has another one of these games in which he does next to nothing, 0 for 3 with a walk. His OPS for the season now is at 654. And you saw the negative defensive domino effect of this in this game. Nelson Cruz as the DH means Luke Voigt has to play first base, meaning Joey Manessis has to play right field. And in this game, we had an error that ended up not meaning much in the game. But in the bottom of the first, second baseman Luis Garcia gets charged with a two-out throwing error. Here's the wind, and Espino delivers, and Goldsmith chops it toward the middle. Garcia, the second baseman, crosses over to the left side. Off-balance throw, bounces past Luke Voigt, and goes down into the Cardinal dugout. The throw was a one-hop throw, not an easy throw to catch, but as we've discussed with other throws of the one-hop variety, it is a catchable throw, and Luke Voigt failed to make the catch. And Goldschmidt ended up being credited with an infield single, advanced to second base on the air. The air was charged to Luis Garcia. Now, it, you know, it ended up not making a big deal in the game, but it was a reminder of how if you have a better defensive first baseman, maybe that error doesn't happen. And it was, I thought, a screaming reminder of it. Why exactly are we still doing this with Nelson Cruz as the starting DH? All right. A lot to unpack there. And I agree with you uh, on all of this, but let's just talk about the play itself. I agreed. I thought it was a very nice play by Luis Garcia, who has played very well at second base, as we've talked about since coming back from the IL. Now, the official rules of official scoring dictate that he has to get the air when you bounce a throw like that. But let's be clear. That is a play that a first baseman at the minimum needs to knock down. It's great if you can scoop it and get the out, but at the bare minimum, you got to knock it down. And Luke Voigt let it go straight through him all the way into the dugout, giving the batter an extra base. So if it's an infield single and the first baseman just couldn't make the scoop, okay, you live with that. But it's an infield single plus the air on the throw because he couldn't at least get his body in front of it, get the glove on it, anything like that. And so, yeah, that is a problem. And one of these days that is going to come back to haunt them in a more prominent situation. On top of all that, it's not great for Luis Garcia's psyche to have an error charged to him when he's been playing really well defensively. So, yeah, I do think that's a problem. Now, they're working with Voight on his defense. I think no matter what, he's going to figure into the picture at first base, at least some of the time, even if they do make some changes. So they do need to work with him on that. But it does make you appreciate it wasn't always pretty, but Josh Bell got the job done over there. And I don't know that we fully acknowledged how hard he worked at it to make himself into a competent first baseman who actually helped his infielders instead of hurt them. And right there, that's a play where Luke Voigt hurt them. Now, the other part of the equation, Nelson Cruz still playing and still DHing. Given the lack of other significant bats in the lineup, I don't think it's the end of the world that he is still playing. I don't think he has to play every day. Certainly, you can find spots to take him out. And I certainly don't believe, as we talked about the other day, that he needs to be hitting cleanup. And that, to me, was the biggest thing from this, because he came up in a few spots with runners on base, in scoring position, a chance to do things, and he did not even have good at-bats. He pops up in the first inning with two outs, runner on second, hits into a double play with a runner on in the sixth. He struck out in the fourth inning to lead off that inning. You want to put Cruz in the lineup because you still think he's better than essentially Josh Palacios or Alex Call or Victor Robles. Those are essentially the guys who are not playing because of this. Okay, fine. I can live with that. But I don't know at this stage of the game 
that you can make a compelling case that he should be hitting ahead of Cabert Ruiz and Luis Garcia in the lineup, and arguably not even in front of Ildemaro Vargas, who continues to hit eighth despite being one of their most productive hitters. So I don't believe that Nelson Cruz at this stage of his career is going to take offense to the idea of not hitting cleanup every day for them anymore. It's just a matter of Davey Martinez wants to make that move and what the, the ramifications of that are. There's no justification for it. There's no like objective quality reason for continuing to have Nelson Cruz A, play every day and B, be your cleanup batter. There just isn't. And I don't know why Davey Martinez is doing this. I mean, I would imagine this is his call. I don't think that Mike Rizzo is telling Davey to continue to do this. And so you have to say to yourself, like, why exactly are you doing this? If you respect Nelson Cruz, okay, great. Everybody does. You don't have to bat him clean up. Like, enough with this. And you certainly don't have to keep playing him on an every game basis like this. I mean, I was waiting for this, right? You knew Nelson was going to play again. And once he came back from the injury, I was so interested to see, okay, do they just put him right back to what he's been doing? And the answer is yes, that's exactly what they've been doing. And coincidence or not, a Nats team that had totaled 20 runs over the previous three games, with each game a win at a division-leading team in the National League, put up one run on Tuesday night. Like, I know that some of that might be coincidence, but I don't think all of that is coincidence. I think it's strange. And, you know, We've talked about like, okay, Lane Thomas looks good in the leadoff spot. Luis Garcia in the two spot. Like that was kind of a nice rhythm that you had going. And instead, it all gets disrupted with what happened with Cruz back in that cleanup spot on Tuesday night. I want to say this about Voigt at first base. You know, Luke Voigt now is pretty established as a major leaguer. I don't know that at his point in his career that he's going to be getting better defensively. Like I think that he probably is what he is. And I think what's especially disturbing with him on some of these one-hop throws is He doesn't look athletic in trying to make these catches. He looks awkward. He looks clumsy. Like, I'm not trying to mock the guy. You know, he's a big, burly guy. He can hit. We know that. But he really does profile as a DH. He does not look, shall we say, graceful at first base. You know, there is a grace. There is an athleticism that you see with some first basemen. Ryan Zimmerman certainly had that. Zim, I thought, showed it last season. If you remember, like, late last year, we had Zim diving for balls in foul territory, things like that. Like, there's an athleticism with Zimmerman. Not surprising, right, given that he's a former third baseman. You don't have that with Void. He falls over. Like, if you watch that play with Garcia on Tuesday night, I don't know what exactly Voigt was doing. He... Like, he didn't really try to catch the ball. He kind of lunged forward. You know, he does this thing where, like, he falls forward and trying to make catches. It doesn't look good. So I don't think that he's going to be getting better. And I don't know if Manessis can be a great defensive first baseman, but if he's athletic enough to where you feel at least semi-comfortable putting him in right field, I would think that maybe Manessis can be a competent defensive first baseman. At the very least, I think they owe it to themselves to spend the next 26 games finding out the answer to that question, because that could help them as they go into the offseason, figuring out what their plan is. You know, it's funny. There's always been this idea that, well, you can just stick anybody at first base. It's an offensive position. And in some ways, yes, that is true. You don't want to have a weak hitting first baseman. There are very few of them that have made it for long in the big leagues. But that said, when you have a good defensive first baseman, it stands out. You see what a difference that makes. And we've been spoiled here for a long time. Going back, I'm going to say till what, 2010, when you have Adam LaRoche followed by Ryan Zimmerman for a decade or more, those two, and you realize just what a difference it can make. Now, they both hit as well. They were not slap hitting weak offensive players, but they were 
above average and at times excellent defensive first baseman. And it does make a difference. And like I've been saying, especially with a young middle infield that you are trying to mold into being the long-term answer there, I think it's even more vital. I don't know if Manessis is the right guy for that for next year. I'd like to see if he can be. If not, I still think that is a position that they should look at this winter. I think it could be done without spending a ton of money. I think it makes a big difference to help your young infielders if you give them a good defensive first baseman. There also is, I think, a symbolism to this Nelson Cruz thing. And this isn't that big of a deal. But, you know, one of the things with the Nats, and we've joked about it, but, you know, some of this isn't so funny is, you know, bad team the last few years now in a full-fledged rebuild. And yet there still is this thing with older players. And it's like the team can't get off having older players and playing older players. Like the team can't quit these older guys. And the fact that in September of a season in which you have the worst record in the majors, that you continue to play Nelson Cruz in his age 41 season as your every game DH and every game number four batter with an OPS well under 700 with him certainly set to be a free agent this offseason and maybe even set to retire this offseason. Like there's just a symbolism to that of recognize who you are, where you are, come to grips with it, and get off this Nelson Cruz thing. Like, it's not that complicated, man. But, you know, to me, there's a symbolism with this that I think is kind of off-putting if you're a Nats fan. Well, I think this game epitomized that. So here's the thing. The three-game winning streak in a lot of ways was keyed by a lot of these young building block players. And that's what made it so exciting. It's not that they won the three games, like we've been saying all along. It's who did it. That made that really exciting. This loss, you really think about who were the key figures in this loss. It's the 42-year-old DH, Nelson Cruz, the 35-year-old starting pitcher, Paolo Espino, and the 36-year-old reliever, Steve Ciszek, who gave up a home run. Now, listen, as a roster, they aren't deep enough yet to be able to fill it entirely with young building blocks. They're just not there. The hope would be by next year they're getting closer to that point, and eventually they're not in this position doing this anymore. But it is frustrating, to say the least, when you come off a three-game winning streak in which you can see the future right there before your eyes, and then you see that streak come to an end primarily because of guys 35 and older holding prominent roles. No doubt. And at least with Paolo and C-Sheck, you could say, all right, there's only so much you can control with those guys. Paolo is in the rotation at a necessity. C-Sheck is a reliever. You know, bullpens are different than position players. The Cruz thing you can control. You have options. It'd be one thing if you had no options. The Nats have a very easy option right now with Manessis and Void, and there are other people who can be playing the outfield, and that it still has to be Cruz as the DH in the cleanup spot. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. We are into September, a time for pennant races in baseball, and Window Nation is offering pennant race-worthy savings. New windows from Window Nation at half the price. Get two free windows with every two windows that you buy, plus pay nothing with no interest until 2025. Lower your energy bills, raise the value of your home with new energy-efficient windows from Window Nation. Visit windownation.com or call 866-90NATION and tell Window Nation 
that Al Galdi sent you. Window Nation windows are the best. You know, the longer that you have old drafty windows, the more money that you're wasting on your heating and cooling bills. Window Nation has saved customers over $60 million on energy bills. And the average Window Nation installer has over 16 years of experience with 20,000 windows installed. Window Nation windows are great. And Window Nation windows are installed right the first time. Take advantage of this terrific deal. Buy two windows, get two windows free. This goes for any style of new window from Window Nation and pay nothing until 2025. Visit windownation.com or call 866-90-NATION. That's windownation.com or 866-90-NATION and tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Quintana to the belt. Kicks and delivers. And a swing and a line drive to the right field line. This is going to fall in for a base hit. Rounding third is Garcia. He will score. Vargas, a turnaround first, will hold as Newtbar's throw goes into second base. We mentioned Luis Garcia. He does continue to hit. He had a double in this game on Tuesday night. He and adds one run second, a one-out double off the right field wall. Ildemaro Vargas had another run-scoring hit. I mean, this is what this guy seems to do almost every game. He went one for three with an RBI single. He, in that one run second, had a two-out first pitch, opposite field, RBI single to right field. And the aforementioned Joey Manessis, another game in which he stands out offensively, two for four with two doubles in this game. At top of the first, a one-out opposite field double to the right field corner on a one-two pitch. So another example of going the opposite way, another example of getting a hit with two strikes on him. And then Manessis in the top of the ninth, a leadoff double to deep left center field off the glove of Cardinals center fielder Dylan Carlson. Your Joey Manessis OPS now over 128 career major league plate appearances is 957. All of that has happened since August 2nd, since MLB trade deadline day on which the Nats selected the contract of Manessis from AAA Rochester. You know, we're getting to a point where it's like, what else can you say? But I mean, I think we need to keep saying it. The guy can hit Every game, he does something impressive offensively, it feels like. And here he was on Tuesday night with a couple of doubles. Well, I've got a new thing to say about him, actually. And this continues to show really how impressive this is, not just in the context of the Nationals or Nationals history, but honestly, in Major League history. Okay, he's got 42 hits now in his first 30 career Major League games. He's only the 13th player in the last 50 years to do that. Stop and think about that. 
in 50 years of baseball, all the players who've had at least 30 games to start their career, and he's one of only 13 to have that many hits. And the list of players, there it's a little bit of a motley crew. There are some big names like Ichiro Suzuki. So on that list, there are also some random names of guys who didn't really pan out. But this is a rare thing that we're seeing here. And it's unexpected to all of us, of course, as a player that we knew nothing about prior to this point. But with each passing day, when he keeps doing this and keeps showing how professional he is as a hitter and the kind of hits that he gets, it does further the argument that they actually have something here, that this is not a really fun but just flash-in-the-pan story to finish out a miserable year. This guy can hit. And... I think they have to start considering him being a part of the plan for next year. doesn't mean he's part of the plan for five years from now, but in the immediate future, I think he absolutely is. You just don't see this kind of thing from a 30-year-old rookie. I, you know, Every once in a while, hey, there's a nice story. Even we had it with Paolo Espino when he first came up. Hey, isn't that cool? Older guy makes his major league debut, has a little bit of success. Okay, well, in the long run, they're kind of exposed for what they are. 30 games in, he hasn't been exposed at all. There is a consistency here that I think is really special and just the kind of thing you do not see from most rookies. I don't care what age you are. And the irony of in a time in which the Nats have had such a hard time developing players and have developed so few true quality players in recent years that this guy out of nowhere has come out of AAA Rochester and has produced like this, you're like, huh? I guess they did kind of develop Joey Manessis, did they? I don't know if you really put it that way, but something's happening here with him. I mean, it's funny with the Nats. If you think about all of the very good position players who the Nats have had, basically all of them have been either highly touted draft picks, well-regarded free agent signings, maybe a veteran who was good at one point comes to the Nats and sort of rediscovers himself. There haven't been many like out-of-nowhere success stories. You brought up Michael Morris. That might be the biggest one of just like a guy who didn't have much pedigree didn't have much expectation, ended up producing for at least a little while. This is almost unprecedented with the Nats since the franchise came here. A viable, truly productive position player who you never really saw coming. You know, most of, most of the Nats, very good position players you saw coming. Nobody saw Joey Manessis coming. Yeah, it's, it's pretty rare across the majors. How many teams have guys at that age who uh, have bounced around the minor leagues for so long and then come up and do this. And it's such a nice story. And we've said all along, it's a shame that he's not doing this for a team that's a little more uh, significant in the pennant race, because I think he'd be one of the stories of baseball right now. And I don't know that outside of DC, very many people are aware of what he is. Although I, it's funny, I had one of the St. Louis writers asked me during the game tonight, like, did they really not have any room for this guy earlier in the year? And I said, well, they had a first baseman named Josh Bell and a right fielder named Juan Soto, and that was part of the reason they never called him up, and not to mention the fact that he was a 30-year-old who had signed as a minor league free agent never made his major league debut before. But, boy, I wonder, are the uh, Phillies, the Braves, the Red Sox teams that employed Joey Manessis in the past, are they kicking themselves right now saying, did we miss the boat? Should we have had this guy in the big leagues years ago? And maybe it's to the Nats' benefit that those guys did not do that with him. Yeah, I mean, the only thing, and we've talked about this, is, you know, is this a Lane Thomas final two months of last season thing and Alcides Escobar final few months of last season thing where, for whatever reason, there is a magic to Manessis right now and next year the Manessis magic is no more. Like, that would be the thing. 
is that, you know, we've seen this. This happens in baseball every year. Guys do well late in seasons, and then they can, like, never be heard from again. So I don't know. But we've seen enough good to where, especially this team in its current predicament with the lack of options, Manessis is going to be a part of the team's plans for next year. And I think right now the thinking should be that he's maybe your number one first baseman going into next season, at the very least part of your first base mix. Like, I think next year... Luke Voigt should be more or less your every game DH. You know, you should have some flexibility with that. But Voigt's your DH and Manessis is your first baseman. If you want to bring in somebody else as part of the mix, okay, fine. But like, I think you need to be considering Joy Manessis as being part of your opening day lineup for next season. Yeah, and probably middle of the order bat (laughs) as well, given who we know they have and what they appear to be going into next season with. And under the assumption, we don't know this for sure, but under the assumption that they're not going to be extremely active in free agency, certainly not at the higher tier level of free agency this winter. Maybe a few years down the road, that'll be the case again. Yeah. And that, you know, that still is a major wild card. If the team gets sold and a new owner comes in and wants to make an instant impact, you know, all bets are off. But if the new ownership does not view things that way, or if there isn't new ownership, because there is no guarantee that the Nats will be sold this offseason, you know, the Nats may do next to nothing this offseason, much as the team did next to nothing last offseason. And so, yeah, it may be Mike and Davey deal with what you got and, you know, make it work for another year or two here before the team is starting to get good again. So Paolo Espino was in that starting pitcher in this uh, 4-1 loss at the Cardinals on Tuesday night. Three runs in five innings. They gave up seven hits, a homer, two doubles, and four singles. The homer, the two doubles, and a single all came in a three-run fourth for the Cardinals. I will say this about our guy Paolo. Five strikeouts versus no walks. Do you know that Paolo Espino now, over his last three starts, has 15 strikeouts versus no walks? So he is doing that. But the overall results for him as a starter continue to be mixed at best for the season now. ERA of 428 in 101 innings over 36 games, including 16 starts. I know that there has been a positive development with Mackenzie Gore. Is there any chance that Gore ends up making more than a start before the end of the season? In other words, is there a chance that Gore could become a part of this rotation for, say, multiple turns before the end of the season? I would think it's two at most, one or two. I mean, let's be honest here. As everyone is listening to this podcast on Wednesday, that is four weeks to the date of when the season ends. The good news, Gore threw 37 pitches in two innings in a simulated game on Tuesday afternoon. Uh, He's going to throw a bullpen session on Friday. Assuming everything goes well, they will send him out on a rehab assignment in the minor leagues. I would think he would need to make at least two of those to build the arm up to the point that at least you feel comfortable with him throwing, I don't know, 75 pitches in a big league game, something like that. And just do the math and look at the calendar that probably doesn't allow for more than two starts at most for him coming off the IL, which I think they're fine with. I think he's fine with. We've talked all along. The idea is let him pitch a few times, provided that he's healthy, go into the offseason confident that this isn't still an issue with him, with his elbow, get a taste of what it's going to be like here, and then move forward going into next year. You know, what that could mean for Espino, I don't know. They've got two off days next week, so there are spots that could be skipped in the rotation. I do think they're still looking for ways to give Josiah Gray more time between starts, so that could affect him more than anybody. I think also, and I know you don't care about this. And I'm not saying that I do. And and Paolo himself admitted he doesn't really care about it. But deep down, I think he would like to get one win before the season's over. He's 0-7. Now, the team has actually won a decent number of his starts. They just haven't come with him either going five innings or with him departing with a lead. He's giving them a chance. You know, he hasn't been great, certainly, 
but they haven't scored a lot of runs for him. He doesn't go deep in games, we know. I think they'd like to find a way, and at this point in the lost season, doesn't really matter if they try to do that to get him a win. You know, be nice. You, you don't want to go an entire season with zero wins. And, you know, the guy's thrown 100 innings now in the big leagues. It's not a great look. Although, like I said, he's the first to say that's not a good measurement of your performance. And he said that tonight after this one. So I know that's why you love him even more than you already did. You know, I didn't think it was possible for my love of Paolo to be uh, heightened, but it now has been off what you just told me there. Yeah, I mean, I think nobody doesn't like Paolo Espino. So if you can get him a win, great. He's been decent, but he's not someone who you go into a start looking at and saying, well, man, let's see how good he can be tonight. It's kind of like, well, let's just see if he can kind of tread water and then, you know, get to the bullpen. And that's kind of how it's been. He's had some good outings, but even the good outings are like one run in five innings, you know, and that's kind of like the max level you get to with Paolo Espino. Uh, But like I said, 15 strikeouts, no walks over his last three starts. So he does have that. Hey, Nat Chat listeners, Tim Shovers, producer of the podcast here. want to thank everyone that has donated to us so far. It is much appreciated. If you are unfamiliar with the donation option to support the podcast with all the production costs for this marathon season, you can go to natchatpodcast.square.site. That's natchatpodcast.square.site. Nothing is obligated. It is only appreciated. Now back to the show. Yeah, for me right now, it's 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 a two-plus inning guy. You know, we saw him go three innings yesterday. He threw the ball really, really well. You know, I could see him doing that in the future. I also could see him possibly maybe being a guy where he could be a, an opener-type guy, where he can open up games for us, uh, maybe pitch three innings or so, and, uh, and go from there. The Nats bullpen on Tuesday night, one run in three innings. Andres Machado, perfect bottom of the sixth. Uh, Steve Ciszek, bottom of the seventh, did give up a run, gave up a leadoff homer to Nolan Gorman into the Cardinals bullpen in right field for a 4-1 Cardinals lead. And Jake McGee tossed a scoreless bottom of the eighth. I was looking at this and, you know, I'm not necessarily blaming anyone for this. This is kind of circumstantial. Kyle Finnegan has not pitched in a game since September 1st, even with a three-game winning streak, even with the Nats playing better. The games have been such to where Finnegan just has not been getting a lot of work. I always think it's tricky, and I know that bullpen management is difficult, and there is so much hindsight that you can do when you're not the manager of, how come you didn't do this? Why didn't you do that? But when you have a guy who you view as your best reliever, and you go, say, a week without him pitching, I think you do have to ask yourself, hmm, should I have maybe pushed it a little more to try to get this guy in at some point? I mean, that does stand out. We're now going into September 7th here, right? Wednesday is September 7th. Kyle Finnegan hasn't pitched since September 1st. Yeah. So I, if I remember right, he was warming up one of the days in New York when they held a slim lead and they tacked on a bunch of runs in the ninth. And so he didn't need to pitch that inning anymore. It is a tricky thing because especially when you don't have off days and they don't until next Monday, the last thing you want to do is burn up your closer in a non competitive situation and then all of a sudden need him the next two days, something like that. I could see him probably getting into the game on Wednesday one way or another because now you're talking, what, six days? You you ideally want to do that and it wouldn't then preclude him from coming back and pitching on Thursday uh, if they're in a position to win. But yeah, it is a, a weird little quirk and a odd thing that you would think as the team gets better, there should be more opportunities for your closer to pitch and actually because they won all those games by six runs. There was not. Can I mention one other thing about the bullpen? Because you brought this up the other night asking about Mason Thompson and what are they doing here, stretching him out? Or would they think about starting him again? I asked Davey Martinez a little bit about what the plan is. 
for him. And I thought this was interesting. I think you will definitely find this interesting. They do like the idea of stretching him out, not to start, but to be a two or even three inning reliever. They think he has the full arsenal to be able to do it if he can stay efficient, if his body can bounce back and his arm can bounce back every few days. And Dave even mentioned the possibility that he could be an opener someday. The stuff he has, the ability to get both lefties and righties out. And this was unprompted. This wasn't like anybody suggesting it to him. Davey volunteered that he could see Mason Thompson being an opener. And I immediately thought of you and how much you would love to see that happen. Well, you're getting me all kinds of excited on this episode, (laughs) first with the Paolo comments and now with these Davey comments. I'll say this, though. Davey has talked about openers before and then the team doesn't do it. So I don't know if Davey just likes to tease me and tease us or if, in (laughs) fact, Davey wants to do this and maybe is being told not to do this or is being discouraged from doing this. I mean, keep this in mind with the opener. The masterminds of the opener were the Tampa Bay Rays a few years ago. And of course, Davey was with the Rays for years, right? Davey and Joe Madden were with the Rays for years. Davey Martinez comes from that background of being forward thinking and, you know, trying to maximize every resource because in the Rays case, you have no choice because you have so few resources. And the Nats, for whatever reason, have not been very open to using the openers. They've only done it a handful of times, usually because they have had to, as opposed to like strategically saying, we want to go ahead and do this. But I have felt, and I've talked about this, given the state of the Nats pitching the last two years, you can now try stuff like this. When you're this bad, you know, consider the season like a blank canvas and you can try all kinds of things and just see what works, see what doesn't work. And I would love to see them just try that with Mason Thompson. They don't have five great starting pitchers right now for a rotation. So kind of see what works. And the other thing is, you know, you can do opener, you can do it so that, you know, it's like a tandem start. Mason Thompson goes three innings, you bring in somebody else. The whole way that teams are looking at pitching is changing, right? The model is changing. And if you just think about it logically, right? 162 games, nine innings, that works out to about 1,450 innings over the course of a season. So it's like a math problem. You have to cover 1,450 innings. So how are you going to do that? Well, if you have some starters who can go six, seven innings, great. You have your relievers who are going, say, one inning at a time, great. But there's a middle ground there. You can have guys who go, say, three innings, four innings at a time. You know, they're, it, it's uh, Did you ever play Tetris as a kid, the video game? Yeah. Like, that's kind of what pitching is if you're a manager. You're trying to just make pieces fit and cover ground over the course of 162 games. And every piece is different. You know, no piece was better than the line, the straight line, because you could get, you know, the true Tetris. Yeah, that was outstanding. But not everyone is like that. Not, you know, Max Scherzer would be the line. Not everyone's like that. But you got to make the pieces fit. And maybe Mason Thompson is a piece from which you don't get one inning. You don't get six or seven innings, but you can get two, three or four innings. So I commend the Nats for being open to this. But I hope they follow through on this, because like I said, (laughs) Davey has talked about this before and then the Nats don't do it. Well, just as long as they don't have any S-shaped pictures, because that was the piece that always threw me off. I could never figure out how to get that one to work. Well, and then when the game starts speeding up and you get all nervous because now you're trying to make everything fit like in like milliseconds and you're just, oh, I can't make it work. And then, you know, the whole thing ends. So, yeah. And that's happened to a few managers over the years of the game speeds up on them as well. Yes, it does. We've seen that, especially in October's past. Yes, (laughs) Uh, we won't go there. Uh, You can always email us, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. Email from Jeff Marshall for a conversation about K-Bit Ruiz and catchers and uh, their offensive prowess. He writes, why is it unusual for catchers to struggle at the plate when they spend more time behind the plate than other players? I've often wondered why catchers are not the best players offensively, 
Because of this, one would think that catchers know what kind of pitch is being thrown out of a pitcher's hand better than other players. Do catchers have an edge when batting, and should they be better offensively? So I get why that would be a line of thought and why people would think that. I I think what I would say to it, though, is, and just my experience from talking to a lot of them, seeing a lot of them over the years, is that it's a really demanding position. (laughs) It's not easy to be a good catcher. You have to be involved in so much. And for the most part, big league teams want young catchers to focus on their defense first. You can't really get away with being a bad defensive catcher. We talk about like first base and you can maybe get away with a bad defensive player because it's an offensive position. Catcher is one of those that you can't really get away with it. You can't say, oh, we're going to put a big slugger behind the plate and just hope that he does uh, a good enough job defensively. So I think part of it is that they do prioritize the defensive side of it. I think the other part of it is because it is so physically demanding, especially anybody who does it for any length of time, that teams are reluctant and nervous about putting a good young hitter behind the plate for fear of that maybe not allowing him to continue his career. We saw it, of course, Bryce Harper when he was drafted as a catcher and they immediately made him an outfielder. So it's a tricky thing. There aren't that many who are good enough defensively and can hold up physically over the years to remain productive offensively, to have a good long career as a true all-around catcher. That's why they are so rare. That's why I think the Nats want to keep Kbert Ruiz there for now, because he does have both sets of skills. But it's a rare thing. And I don't know that just saying, oh, well, you're good at reading pitchers or calling a game necessarily translates into being a good hitter. I had a few baseball people over the years say to me things like, when Let's say you have a manager who never played in the big leagues before. Jim Leland was a good example of that. And people would say, well, what does he know? He never played in the big leagues. Well, just because you never played in the big leagues doesn't mean that you don't actually know how to play. You just can't do it yourself. So just because you know what a pitcher might be thinking or where he's going to throw or anything like that doesn't mean that you are good enough to also hit it. It's a special skill to be able to do all those things. So that's why I think you just don't see that many all-around offensive and defensive catchers these days. Yeah, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy too because if you are a catcher and you're a good hitter, then you're probably not going to be a catcher for long because the team wants to preserve your good hitting. And so the population of catchers ends up being catchers who aren't great hitters because all the great hitting catchers end up not being catchers as time goes on. And it is physically demanding. I mean, if you just think about being a catcher at its core, you're squatting for, you know, nine innings at a time. You know, for most people, the act of squatting once, like you got to pick something up, you squat down, that's not easy. Imagine doing that over the course of two, three, four hours, like what that does to your knees and your hip joint and your lower back and, you know, the, the taxing nature of that on your body overall, that's not easy. I mean, these catchers, they wind up with knees that are shot, like they can barely run as their careers go on. So, you know, it's it's a delicate thing. And I think with Kbert Ruiz, it's like, okay, you got him as one of the centerpieces of a big trade, right? Max Scherzer and Trey Turner. And it has since been reported that Mike Rizzo was like lusting after Kbert Ruiz. Like Rizzo really wanted Ruiz. So in order for him to really pan out, like in order for him to be a hit, it's not going to be enough for him to just be good defensively. Like he does need to be good offensively. He does need to get to another level. His OPS is actually isn't that different from Nelson Cruz's this year. You want to see that improve moving forward. With him, I think it's more than just the defense. Like he does need to hit and hit better than he is hitting. I think he can. So yeah, with him, I think there's that. But he's kind of in that middle ground of the offense is good for a catcher, 
but it's not good enough to where you would say, well, get him out from being a catcher. Like he's probably going to be a guy who is a catcher for most, if not all of his career. And so he's going to have to find a way if he's going to pan out for the Nats like we want him to, to be a good hitting catcher, but to also be a good defensive catcher. And that is rare. There are very few guys who have done that in recent major league history. Right. I mean, right now, if you said, okay, we're going to make you a first baseman, are you confident enough that he's going to hit well enough to make that worthwhile? No, you're not. So I I agree. I think the reason that he could end up being an all-star catcher is because he has the ability to be good defensively and hit well for a catcher, which is a different standard than you would have at other positions. So I think that's part of it. And, you know, it does, since I'm in St. Louis, you just immediately go to mine, it does really make you appreciate what you were saying earlier about how Yadier Molina has done it for so long. And no, he's not the offensive player that he used to be. He's really unproductive offensively at this point, but he still calls a game like anybody. He still controls the running game as good as anybody and he has held up for a long time doing that. And it is such a rare thing in today's world. You used to see it a little bit more. The last 20 years, how many elite, like Hall of Fame type catchers who spend their whole careers there? Do you see Buster Posey couldn't do it forever? Joe Maurer couldn't do it forever? There just are very few of them. And it does make you appreciate what Yadier Molina has done squatting behind the plate all those times. And one other thing, you said all the squatting, you know, every pitch that's thrown, they have to throw it back to the pitcher. So their arms get tired on top of all that. Yeah, you will see uh, catchers deal with arm injuries. Matt Wieters had Tommy John surgery at one point in his career. So yeah, that definitely does happen. Yeah, I mean, the ex-Nat, Pudge Rodriguez was one of the other guys who come to mind, but there are not many for sure. It is a very taxing position, no doubt. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email us Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram at Nats Chat Podcast. You can get yourself or someone who you know a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan from Mark Zuckerman and Hamel Galdi. And we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.